This is Riley Perez, the author of What is Real? The Life and Times of Darnell Riley, released in August 2018 by Rare Bird Books. I'm with Martin J. Weiss, the author of Flamingo Coast, the upcoming book. Uh, the release is January 2019, is that correct? Uh, January 15th, I believe, and um, I also have a book with Rare Bird Books called The Second Son, uh, which released, I think, the same day as yours did uh, in August. Yes, same day. You you are you're putting them out there. So <laughs> let's let's dive right into that. Your your output. I mean, I see that you've worked in in television commercials, uh, directing, writing, producing. Uh, this is, I mean, storytelling clearly is is within you. It's just which medium are you telling it at this month or this week, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's hopefully a. Uh... Uh, I'm prog progressing into the longer form all the time. I started very short with the uh, commercials, like you said, and uh, did film, and and uh, now I'm on my uh, second novel. Yeah. As as a commercial uh, director, I mean, or was it as a concept person, and then it, it was mostly as a director and a producer. Excellent. So, what do you take from the directing world? It's all about how you tell the story, the visuals of it. What do you take from that going into how you lay out a book? You, you see it, your mind's eye see it. What's your process to get us, the readers, to see it? It's a great question. Um, you know, to me, directing and writing are, are very similar. It's the same process. You're telling a story. Um, and, and really, a 30-second TV commercial is uh, no different than a, than a movie or a novel, except that it's much, much longer. But same basic principles. Um, and, and the process is relatively similar um, with the except Because, you know, with my writing and, and, and my books, I definitely think more visually. And my background and my training was in, uh, was in movies. You know, I went to film school, and so I've always just kind of been fascinated with visual stories. Do you find it more of a challenge to tell a story, a beginning, middle, and end in a short form? Um, granted, with a novel, you know, we have three, four, five hundred pages to play with to, to build the world uh, that we want the reader to dive into. Do you find it more of a challenge to like, a short film, a 15-minute film, or a 30-second or one-minute commercial? Do you find it more of a challenge to... It, it is in some ways, and um, I, I look at it as, as a good uh, training ground um, because you're when you're working with constraints like 30 seconds and, and like you said, to tell beginning, middle, and end in such a short amount of time, um, it gives you a lot of discipline and and, um, and, and you don't have a lot of freedom, um, whereas like you said, you do with, uh, with novels and you can really go into backstories and and, and other things, but um, I'm always very aware when I'm writing longer form, not to divert too far from the story. That everything that I do hopefully advances the story forward. At least that's the goal. Right. Well, let's take a look at Flamingo Coast. I mean, we're we're picking up on a story of Special Agent Jennifer Morton. She's been released from the IRS. Her services are no longer needed, and she decides. Uh, I have some 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 wrongs to right, and the island, this exclusive island, where there are no extradition laws, that's where I'm going to go figure out how to solve some crimes. So, w w 
is this island modeled after any any particular island we know of or <laughs> actually there are there are some facts here and and some of the backstory later in in, in the book touches upon this um, based on some federal case, old federal cases back in the 70s and 80s. And I use this in, in one of the characters. She, she gets fired from the IRS, and she goes after the one financial criminal that, that uh, really got her fired, and he, he got away and escaped. And she knows that he's there, but because of the no extradition law, she can't bring him back. And she, she goes to, to find out uh, some other way to do it, and she comes upon this whole community of financial fugitives are protected and it is somewhat based on a, on a story I heard. And then there are some facts in the backstory based on uh, a Bohemian bank that was used um, for a lot of people to evade taxes back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And um, a lot of people uh, were indicted and a lot of people got off. So it's, it's, I, I use that and it, and it, parallels the current story that that's fictionized so it uh it is based in some truth right you know a couple of years back we had the, the panama papers that were released where you find uh, all these all guards all these different businessmen from around the world who who may or may not have reported in their home country their financial standing or bank accounts that you know have a couple hundred million bucks in it or then you find then you find a a building that maybe has 20 office spaces there, but there are about 500 corporations <laughs> uh, uh, using that address as their, uh, as their address. So you wonder how could 500 corporations exist in that one building? So in, in diving into Flamingo, uh, is, is she, I mean, she clearly has her eyes set on one character and she unravels this whole network of, these 500 some odd companies and characters that are, that are hiding out uh, her ultimate goal. I mean, she, she has to use work within the rules as an IRS agent, but she's no longer an agent. So did you just release her to be a hound dog? Basically. And, and she resisted at first. She, she's uh, hired by somebody from FinCEN, the financial crime enforcement agency off the record you know, off the books. So who has an ulterior motive in, in, in the story? And so she, she goes under the direction of that person, but with the, with the knowledge that she has to find some other way to, to bring back whatever she finds. And she does. She finds clever ways. But the, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers that you mentioned is also another reality that is, is paralleled in the story because – those were data leaks that exposed a lot of people that were hiding money and um, corporations, individuals. And the, the, there's a renegade reporter in, in my story early on that is after something bigger than that. And she finds it in the end. And I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, uh, there, there is something based in reality in that as well that comes to fruition at the end of the story. Definitely interesting. Tell me some of your early influences in this crime caper, you know, PI on the, on the hunt. Is, is there like a Tom Selleck uh, in, your, in your past that you looked at and said, you know, I like his style or, you know, as, as far as the authors or as far as where, where, well, cause this, um, this was inspired from, from kind of different angles. One was a curiosity about why somebody would become an IRS agent. And I had, um, 
learned about one in particular that had a real dark side that they were after. And it just was really fascinating to me because you never hear about why somebody does something like that. And, and I, I use that as an initial backstory, but I also, you know, wanted to explore, there are a lot of people that do cheat America or cheat the system, so to speak. And um, I wanted to parallel those people with the people that go after them and often break the law. And in the name of justice versus the name of greed, I was just trying to attack it from both those angles and see where I came out at the end. Right. I mean, the IRS, their enforcement division isn't as glamorous as a DEA or FBI agent. So, you know, to choose that particular, you have to imagine there's most of them have that forensic accounting background. Uh, or at least understanding in some way to where they they know that like any accountant, you know, the devil's in, in the details, usually in the footnotes. So I could, I could see your main character, Jennifer, uh, you know, attaching on to a character or a case and just, you know, gnawing at it like a dog on a bone. So uh, it's going to be an interesting read for sure. Uh, with with the, the the Cayman Bahamian world and the countries that exist where you can somewhat be off the grid, right? The, the character definitely could could keep going on and it ends that way. And yeah, I did kind of think of that um, as I was going along that she would make they do end up off the grid. But I thought um, I left it open so because uh, I thought she was an interesting character that that could take on lots of different situations and crimes and stories and and. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Bravo. Have you ever visited the Bahamian Cayman Islands? Well, I had a lot of money. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have been. I, and I have explored some of these places. And it was really fascinating. When I did some research for this, um, there were a lot of books that were really weird, odd books that I found in obscure places about how to hide your money and disappear. And I thought that, I think some of them were written kind of tongue in cheek, but I got a lot of things from them and I thought it was just fascinating because it's, it's not only Americans that are hiding things offshore, but it's people all around the world. And there are a lot of havens and a lot of banks that, you know, we hear about in movies and stuff, but they really, it really is something that's all around the world. And it's an issue because it is, uh, I think the uh, IMF uh, estimates something like $7 trillion of American money hidden offshore that's not accounted for. And that, that's a lot of money. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, some, that could definitely solve a couple of, uh, of my cigar issues on cigars <laughs> I want to get at a discount. Well, speaking of cigars, so last year I was in Cuba for my 40th birthday. And then we took a vacation to get over the vacation because Cuba was just so jam-packed. We were looking at you know, four or five different sites and sites a day. So we went to the Bahamas, and I had one of the most bizarre experiences in a casino that had just opened up. And we get into the casino, and there's no one in there. <laughs> there's absolutely no really? one in there. I could, I could run around from slot machine to... Uh, blackjack table to crap tables and there were no lines there was no one in there and they had these rules where 
the locals couldn't go into there. There were local casinos for the locals, the Bahamians, and they were catering to the international crowd. So, I mean, it was a bizarre moment for me where I'm thinking, why wouldn't you just want any and everyone to walk? I mean, it's like, imagine Las Vegas saying that a Las Vegas resident couldn't gamble in their casinos. It, it, you, it think, it was, you think it was a front, for, a front for something? It was completely empty. I have photos of it, and it looks like a ghost town. And it just was too much access. I didn't. I didn't have to wait. I didn't have any fire to feel. You know, as a as a gambler, you know, you're looking for, okay, which table may have a hot streak going on. It was completely cold because there was no one in the casino. Just one of those crazy moments where I'm saying, this is this is the Bahamas. Yeah, best place to launder money. So that, there you go. Exactly. Yeah, and when you see guys walking around and and you know cut off shorts and. Their whole day is flip flops and coconuts, and figuring out which con is going to bring them the best meal for the day. You know, right, turning right. the blind to a couple of million dollars in the account wouldn't be too hard to believe. Well, well, congratulations, and I'm looking forward to seeing how far this character goes into the next one. So, well, thank you, just- and let's uh, let's let's switch this on you because uh, your story is fascinating and. Um, you also write about crime, but you have, uh, you're not writing fiction. You're writing firsthand experience. So I, I was fascinated uh, to, to hear about it, and um, I'd love to hear more. Um, when, when did you decide to write a memoir of your experience? Well, let's start by saying there won't be a part two because I'm not going back in. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, you're not I writing started. a series. No, no. I mean, if there could be a prequel possibly, but there won't be a part two to this one. Uh, I started writing uh, mainly note-taking. And it, it wasn't with anything major in mind. It's just certain things that would, you know, reveal itself before me. It's like, I, I'm gonna, let me write this down. Not thinking, okay, I'm going to write a book one day. And it wasn't until uh, Scott Kahn, when I was on my second year and I gave him a call and, you know, I listened to him. Uh, read me the riot act on how crazy stupid I was thinking that I could rule the world through crime. Uh, and then afterwards, prior to the phone call ending, he asked me what I was working on, what I was writing. And at the time, I didn't want to say, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. You know, I just said, oh, nothing much. He's like, well, keep writing. So every couple of months that I'd give him a call, he'd always ask me what I'm working on. And that's when I actually started formulating what it could possibly be. So once I was released after my nine-year prison sentence, uh, I blocked off a couple of days of time and figured out what the story could be. I had it set out in a chronological, my, my notes were chronological, 2005, 2006, 2007. And I figured uh, if I'm going to do it, I got to set a schedule and just knock it out. There's no, well, I'll, you know, pick it up every couple of months and write it. I just had to go straight, straight for the gusto. And a couple of days went by, a good week went by, and I had something that resembled a cohesive story. <laughs> and then I, I gave it to someone else to read, and the response was great. So then I did my own self-editing and gave it to another person to read, and 
the response was the same, you know, which for me, the first two people I gave it to to read, they were in two separate age groups, two separate socioeconomic groups. Um, but for their response to be the same, it told me that I, I, I reached my goal, which was to tell the human story. How long did it take you to actually write the book? I went on a rampage for nine days. Uh, it took me nine days, and my schedule was, I think I slept for about five hours a day. I got my workouts in, but I was wow. fortunate to be able to just write. Um, and a bunch of Red Bull, I uh, give props to Red Bull all the time. <laughs> and I just, I was able, I was in a position where I could block out that amount of time. Uh, there weren't any distractions going on. And I just wrote. It's, that's very fast. Tell me, uh, what, what do you, what was your hope uh, that people would take away from your experience? And, and tell me if it, it met that expectation. Yeah, the hope was that people would, well, ultimately, you know, you're going to get out of what you want. I, mean, I, I might read Flamingo Coast and all of a sudden your, your description of the Bahamian Islands has me falling in love with them. And, uh, you know, the characters were great. The story was great, but I want to go back to the Bahamas could be my thoughts. So uh, folks are going to, you know, take away what they want. I, I think if, if I did my my job, if I properly gave you that world. Uh, many folks have said, I never want to go to prison. I never want to be confined. Some have even said, well, if I am locked up for whatever reason, I understand what's going on. You know, the picture you painted, you laid it out so properly. Even guys that I know that have been around, who've grown up in LA, who never knew the extent of the gang culture, that exists in LA, that as an inmate, I became, you know, it, it was thrusted upon me, all the various factions and, and alliances. So I just had two interesting speaking engagements. One was at USC Gold School of Law, where I was speaking before a group of attorneys that are from other nations who are working to get their certification to practice law here in America, in California. And then this past Friday, I spoke at a, a charter high school. And I'll say the question that I got from both groups, a high school as well as grad school attorneys, um, the questions that I got were pretty much the same, with the exception of the attorneys were able to ask me, you know, legal questions uh, about uh, procedural questions that the students that wasn't on their mind, but to have these two different groups who were viewing my story just through the, the human lens of, you know, of despair that they read about in the, in the book, the, the loneliness and, you know, the, the hope that, that my life can, you know, get back on track, you know, while inside as well as post-release. It, it was pretty interesting to me that these students, you know, were, as equal with their interests and wanting to know more as these grad students were. So moments like that make me think, okay, maybe I actually did hit my mark. If I had ever set a mark, maybe I did hit it. 
Yeah, you know, we have such expectations of, of what prison life is based on movies and books. And coincidentally, um, last night I was finishing up David Baldacci's uh, book, The Last Mile. I think it came out two years ago. Um, and it's, it's based on a guy that's on death row after 20 years in prison. He went in when he was about 20 years old and he was about 40 now. And just before he was about to be executed, he gets off and somebody else claimed to, to do the crime, the murders that he, uh, supposedly committed. And so he gets out and he has to find out who actually did it and all that. And it, it, there's a lot of explanation about, especially cause he was innocent, but you know, what it was like to be incarcerated for that long. Uh, and I, I can't fathom it. Uh, do you think that what we read in fiction books and, and see in movies is somewhat accurate or is it, is it a very different, uh, real experience? You know, what, what you see, like when you look at, uh, the green mile or you've, um, what's the one the Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank, yeah. Um, it's set. 50s, 60s, it's, it spans you know, gener- a couple generations. Uh, what, what exists from the early 1920s, 30s, 40s, going up all the way into present day prison, uh, whether it's in America or anywhere else, the basic rules that inmates set for each other, convicts set, you know, they still exist. Don't rat on anyone. Don't get in anyone's business. Don't steal anything from anyone. Uh, and it's pretty crazy because, you know, most of the guys in prison robbed a bank, stole this, stole this car, whatever, whatever. But once you get to prison, it's, you know, don't steal. <laughs> That's a mortal sin in there. Don't steal. But it's like, how did I get here? You know, um, don't rattle anyone. I, I was talking to the, the high school class and I was saying, you know, the rules inside defy logic. They exist. Those are the rules for that society because it is a fully functioning society. Uh, if someone in free society stole my car, I would call the cops and I would make the report. If on the inside you stole something from me, you're bullying me, I can't tell the authorities. That's that's ratting, you know. So the rules inside exist unto themselves. You know, free society would look at them and say, wow, okay, this is, this isn't regular, but it exists. And that's what allows that society to, to function as it, as it does. And then leaving that world and coming back to the real world, you wonder, how do I, how do I get rid of some of those rules that I know don't exist here? You know, so it's a challenge for you to switch off. Make the adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. This is how I'm going to survive. I'm just going to follow these rules no matter how antithetical they are to what I know to be right. How much were you isolated, though, and how much were you mingling with the others? Uh, You know, it sounds to me like you're alone a lot of the time. Yeah, you know, the moments you are physically alone, you you cherish those moments, but you're never really alone, uh, meaning that there isn't anyone else around you. It's it's overcrowded. You know, you have a cellmate. If you're in a dormitory, you have a hundred other guys that are around you. So you you rarely are physically alone. So those moments that you are, some guys that actually enjoy the possibility of being in the shoe, in the hole, because I get to breathe for however long I'm going to be in here, twenty days, whatever the penalty is for whatever my infraction. 
I get a little breath, a little reprieve, because then I got to go back out into the main line or wherever I'm housed and I'm dealing with another thousand something odd characters in their own interests. Yeah. You know, you know, something I, I, I keyed in on when you were talking about the guy who was uh, found to be innocent after so many years of incarceration. Yeah. This is the one thing that pretty much surprised me about interacting with guys in, that are incarcerated, that have been convicted. Um, it's rare that I found a guy who said, I, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. So if you if you had a guy who actually said that you mu- you would listen, the majority of the guys in there say, you know, I, I did this, but I didn't do what they say I did fully. You know, it's like I had a here's my reason, you know. So when you hear these out, you say, OK, well, yeah, he didn't do everything in the indictment. He is admitting to robbing the guy, but here's his reason. You know, So it, it's interesting to see that. There is no gray area in the law in me saying you and I got into a fist fight and after the fist fight, I knocked you down. Then I decided to walk off with your wallet, but I didn't intend to, I didn't start off by robbing you, but now after the fist fight, for whatever drunken reason we got into a fight, I've now tacked on to the mutual combat robbery charge. You know, you find guys that are in there for a, a 20 year sentence because it's officially now a robbery yeah. versus the guy who woke up that morning and his day was planned out. I'm going to go rob someone, you know, right. you and I just got to fight at the bar. And next thing you know, I have the mutual combat that should be a wash, but now I have a, a robbery charge on top of it. And, uh, you know, you find guys in there like that and you, and you, you, know, you got a bit of sympathy because it's like, ah, I mean, he wasn't out bopping old ladies over the head for their purses, you know, but yet he, he has 20 years uh, to serve, you know. So it, it was always interesting whenever I'd come across a guy like that and, and we'd actually go into what our individual stories are and you say, wow, he, he may have gotten shafted on that one. Right. Or, you know, was 20 years, you know, necessary? I mean, c- could he have learned whatever lesson he's supposed to learn with maybe three, four, you know? It's kind of daunting, and 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 I can understand your the changes you experience you getting into that society and that that culture. What was what was your experience? I mean, because you were you said you were in it for nine years, right? Nine years, yes. So what, that's a long time. What what was it like? What kind of adjustment was it when you got out, and how has it been? Well, I was pretty fortunate. Um, I mean, there are some guys who come out and all they have is the gate money that they're given from the, the prison, the state of California, $200. So I was pretty fortunate in that I have friends and family support. So coming out, I just wanted to work. I just wanted to get back in the groove of, I mean, let me take a job washing dishes somewhere. I want to be able to have a conversation with folks who punch the clock, you know, just to get the feel of, of, uh, of a working man's paycheck, you know, and, and having to abide by schedule and just enjoying conversation. I've I just found myself talking to folks sitting at the train station. I'm, I'm pretty personable anyway. I can talk to anyone anywhere. So th- there was some comfort in being able to just be able to 
run to catch the train because it's about to leave. I, I looked forward to missing it. Okay, well, I'll catch the next one. No big deal. So I think I appreciate it more, which allowed me to really take in the world. Granted, now I'm a bit jaded. You know, I hate people and all. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> that's besides the point. But, you know, coming right out, I, I just wanted to get back in the groove of everyday life. And if that meant, you know, haggling in one of those downtown shops for a backpack that they're selling for 10. Okay, can I get it for eight? You know, so little things like that, that we may take for granted. You know, it's uh, to someone incarcerated, they look forward to the opportunity to to be able to uh, run towards a train that's about to leave because inside our schedule is so regimented. You know what's going on. Every moment of the day, there's nothing that's a surprise. Even when a guy's about to be attacked, you know, out of respect for the yard, if this group A is about to discipline one of their own guys for whatever reason, maybe he owes drug debt or whatever, they're going to advise group B and group C what's about to happen so that group B and C aren't surprised and we react, we respond, thinking that one of our guys are being attacked. So even in the most violent of circumstances, you know what's about to happen. Unless you're the one that it's about to happen to. <laughs> then you that, don't know. Right. So, you know, and even in, in the violence that goes on in prison, you know what's about to happen. There are very few surprises uh, that happen in there. So coming into free society and being surprised that the bus is late, uh, okay, I'll just, I'll roll with the punches. This is a new experience. Right. Changes your perspective a little, I'd imagine. And uh, yeah. now, that, now that your book is out, how has the response been? And are you glad you wrote it? I am glad I wrote it, yes. Um, it, the response has been pretty mixed. There's been, a, you know, there are some folks who have their views on, someone who's ever committed a crime, you know, like it's almost if they were to really take their judgment to the logical conclusions, what that, what some folks would be advocating for would be that we should all be sent away to some Island. You know, they don't realize Australia is that Island, (laughs) but I've, I've found some folks that have really shown that their supposed open-mindedness accepting uh, there's a cutoff. And if you've ever been incarcerated, that's the cutoff. And what they don't realize in that is that the laws that we have in society exist because we voted on these laws. We found these actions to be proper for proper society. And if you violate these rules, these laws, then these are the penalties for it. They don't realize that because they are human they exist in this society they're subject to the laws as well you know i could never do that well how do you know i could never do this well how do you know and what if this situation happens you find yourself where you're defending yourself and now you're subject to uh, a battery charge or you defend your home and you wind up shooting someone you rightfully have your Second Amendment right to shoot someone in the process of them burglarizing your home. Now you are having to answer to. Co- so it's like they get this feeling. Some folks have gotten this feeling that 
the, the laws that applied to me because I broke the laws, that it could never apply to them. And I think a little perspective um, would open folks' eyes and say, okay, well, maybe I should settle back on all my judgments, uh, my condemnation, really. I mean, the judgment, I've already been judged. I've given an X amount of years, and I went and served it. So yeah. can I now live my life? And then on, and there's been some folks who I would maybe prejudge and say, uh, I would think that they were going to, they don't want anything to do with me. And they've been pretty open and welcoming. So well, what about, uh, has anybody from the, in, that you were with on the inside read the book? Uh, yes, a couple, a couple that are free in society. Some that have come to my book readings and shown support and their, you know, acceptance because I properly painted that world and you know, exposed uh, some humanity that exists in that world. They've been supportive. Uh, I have a couple of guys that I know that are on the inside that have purchased a book, and they're like, "Wow, you you know you served to justice. Great story." Yeah, and 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 your attitude about it is is amazing. I, I think I think most people would be just fascinated with. I know I am. You know what it's like, and I don't I don't think with judgment because anybody knows that you can end up in a situation that you didn't intend, or you did intend, and you know. That that real experience is is always in our mind, you know. We, and again, we see it in movies and books, and we just—I I personally can't fathom it. It's just—it's it, amazing what you went through. And it sounds like you, you well, changed your, your perspective a lot in life. For sure. I mean, I wouldn't want Agent Jennifer Morton on my <laughs> tail. So, if we would, in closing out, uh, being that you come from the entertainment space and many different mediums. If you would give me the uh, two minute elevator pitch on uh, Flamingo Coast and we can, we can end it with that elevator pitch. Well, thanks. Sure. Um, so Flamingo Coast is about an IRS agent, Jennifer Morton, who's, who's quite aggressive in how she goes after criminals. She has a vendetta and she gets fired for the, the biggest criminal she ever went after gets away. And she gets fired uh, because she gets caught up in a, a whole, this is a long elevator pitch. I just started. <laughs> I'm just on page three already now. Um, and uh, so she goes after him uh, because she, she knows that he went uh, to, uh, to an Island in the Caribbean and she tries to bring him back. But what she finds is a place that harbors the biggest uh, financial fugitives in the world that all got away. And she becomes immersed in this society and she becomes one of them. And then she disappears. So I'll leave it at that. Excellent. And the publication date? That comes out January 15th. Looking forward to it. And the August 14th book that was released, Second Son, that's it's available the second right son, now. And that came out August 14th, same, same date as yours. And uh, in, in those, that August 14th day, right? Yeah, August 14th. And, and that's about uh, twin brothers that um, have a tech company in Santa Monica. Uh, uh, that develops a, an app called Stalker, which is a transparency app, and it turns on them uh, when one of them has to use it. So uh, it's a it's a trek up from uh, Silicon Beach up to Silicon Valley, and uh, it's also a thriller. I think we should start working on that app. Yeah, real life. <laughs> I think some things like that exist now. 
It does. Uh, they use biometrics and other means. I think our next conversation has to be all about this app, second one. Yeah. And then we go from there and figure out who's come up with it or, or if it's in the pipeline. Yeah, they, they just keep getting more intense. Excellent. Well, it's been a great conversation. I'm looking forward to the Flamingo Coast. Um, great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Great talking to you. For sure. Take care. Have a good one. Bye-bye.